Well, all right. Well, we're up to lesson 13. We're in the teens now. January the 21st. In our study from Matthew, we're still in chapter 3. We ended last week right at verse 9. But in conjunction with our theme, which had been repentance, and looking at repentance as John uh, John the Baptist brings it to us in those uh, verses there. I took you to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. Uh, this is primarily for those new folks who are joining us today and then to get us back on track because we're going to just finish up a little bit with repentance here and then we'll move on into verse 9, I believe it is. But last week when we took that little detour to, detour to 2 Corinthians 7, 11, we looked at some words there, um, which you can uh, sort of use, look at the definitions of those words and get a real clear idea of what I like to refer to as just a true and valid repentance. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought, hey, is my repentance genuine? Am I properly focused? Paul talks about that in those passages. He talks about a worldly repentance, you know, and you're just worried about consequences or the, the, the shame of getting caught or whatever. And it's easy to get those feelings mixed up with the fact that we are sinners, that we have sinned and that we've disappointed God and we violated Him, His law, first and foremost. So the Word of God gave us seven words. I'm not going to go back and into those. I'll just mention them. We talked about an earnestness. We talked about a vindication. We talked about an, an indignation, being indignant over one's own sin and what that meant. We talked about a, a proper attitude of fear or awesome reverence for God during those times. And then the last three dealt with a longing that should be present in our heart, a longing to, to make things right, to restore fellowship. Uh, the word zeal was there, talking about a, a new desire for holiness and so forth. And then really that last one spoke of just avenging a wrong, a phrase there which truly repentant people have because, as I like to say, they're just simply calling it what it is when they realize that they're in need of repentance. And by that I mean they're caught, they've identified the sin. They're saying what it is. They're not trying to rationalize it. They're not trying to talk around it. They're not trying to present themselves in a fashion that shows themselves to be elevated above another person in the matter, even though they're wrong. Do you follow what I'm saying? All those little things are just little nuances in our intent that strike against our need to repent. Just to say what it is and get it done because that's the only thing that will wash us up clean. God will forgive. He'll do that. He'll bestow upon us a a new energy, if you will, a new insight, a new knowledge about avoiding certain types of sins that seem to often want to reach up and grab us. You know, I'm convinced everybody has something, don't they? Just something that they, you know, regularly deal with that recurs in their life. Uh, there's something, by the way we're made, or our deficiencies, or even our experiences, they, they leave a hole here and there in our spirituality sometimes. And by that, I just simply mean a little place for evil to get in, to deal with us. So we acknowledge that. We don't hide it. We shared how David said, when I hide my sins, basically he says, I get sick. (laughs) I just get physically sick. That's what happens. And we know that when we harbor sin in our heart, again, as David says, he, he can't hear us. He always hears, but the implication is he's not going to answer because it's got to be first things first. 
especially when you're coming to the Lord for repentance. We're dealing with Him and with Him alone. All sin is against God first and foremost. All sin. Now the Bible's clear. We can sin against our brother. We can do that. We can sin against our own bodies. But all sin is against God. And He's the one who is most offended. So we want to get to the point in our lives where we don't want to take one step without knowing that we're right with the Lord. That there's nothing that we know of. After diligent searching, as Paul tells us, there's nothing that we know of. And then if there is, God show me. Reveal it to me. Am I lazy? Am I fearful? You know, what, what is it? You get into those kind of things. So, we thank God for repentance. And I ended by talking about we trust that in our spiritual growth and development, certainly as part of our continual sanctification, that we move into a, a period where we, we actually welcome conviction. We know what that means. We understand clearly that a, a conviction in our heart and a need for repentance that's been revealed to us is, a, is just a wonderful expression of God's love for us. Think about it that way. In the Word of God, He uh, makes it analogous to a father taking care of a son or you know, that kind of a thing. God loves us because we're His children and He will correct us. And as I thought about that, I wanted to, uh, at least for now, end our discussion or, or my sharing on repentance by taking us yet to another passage that I think will help Help us think about this and take it with us this morning when we leave. I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. As we've approached various topics as a result of going through Matthew, we'll, we'll do this. We were in 2 Corinthians 7-11 last week. We're going to look briefly this morning. And really what I want to do is read this. I just want the Word of God to speak. I don't want to go back and go through all this. I think with all that I've said in the... Uh, explanations this morning that it'll fall in line for you as we conclude our our thoughts about repentance and move on, okay? Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. So thank God for that. Verse 7, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it or sought for it with tears. I wanted to share that with you this morning uh, just to put, if you will, uh, a period or a final note there regarding our discussion about repentance. And here as it relates to the discipline of God, God reaches into our life to discipline us. It's going to involve repentance, is it not? How could it not? We've disappointed. We've acted wrongly. We've sinned. And he talks about it here in good fashion. But really, to me, the best place to end, as I said, is by realizing that that's God's loving hand upon us. And whatever it takes, whatever's necessary in our personal life to get to the point where we're, uh, we have a total admittance, if you will, of what's required of us to be effective in our repentance. As I said, and I'm just simple about it sometimes, I say call it what it is. Because if we try to do anything else, then we fall short of a complete repentance. We want to be clean and usable before God. Well, repentance. And then we go back to Matthew chapter 3. And we really got up to verse 9. And uh, here you've got John the Baptist, you know, addressing the scribes and the Pharisees earlier who had come. And he told them, you know, to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. He totally questioned the reason for them coming to baptism. And he goes on about the repentance. But in verse 9 of chapter 3, he continues and he says, when he's addressing them, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And we know the situation there with the Jews and the way they understood themselves as being children of Abraham and certainly that uh, the wrong idea that simply because of uh, heredity or nationality or whatever that they were included and literally had no need of repentance. And you find this particularly true 
and uh, the governing lines there, the, the scribes and the, the Pharisees, the religious elite, the religious leaders. And it's really nothing more in its, in its uh, essence. It's nothing more than what we might refer to uh, today as some sort of salvation by association. I can't tell you how many times when I'm sharing with people, Jeff, you may run into this people personally when you talk to them about salvation. One of the first things you get is, well, you know, my dad, my granddaddy was a preacher, you know, or my, my daddy's a preacher right now, or I was raised in a Christian home, as if to say, well, that makes me okay, okay? And we know, uh, we know that it's not accurate. You can't sit in this church or a like church and know that that has any validity, but the world does. And as you've often heard it said before, I'm sure, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He doesn't. No grandchildren. He only has children. They're His offspring. They're born of the Spirit. God generates that within us. And there's nothing vicarious about that other than the work of Christ. Okay, not who we belong to here on this earth or who our parents are. And uh, I often have, I'm amazed, I've even had this emerge in the past month in talking to to someone. First thing out of their mouth is this issue about how they were born into a Christian family and have been in church all their lives. Okay, what have you learned from that? Where is that taking you? How have you responded to the Word of God? What do you know about Christ? I like to ask them that old question. Uh, how How do you get into heaven? How do you get into heaven? If you get the old thing, well, if I'm if I'm good, you know, if I do this or do that, then you right off the bat know what you're dealing with, right? Because there's nothing that we can bring. And it's interesting that the human heart has not changed. It hasn't changed. The same issue that John the Baptist was dealing with with these people who were coming in pretense or coming on the wrong grounds, okay. Uh, we have the same thing today. There's, there's nothing new under the sun because human nature has not changed. The human heart hasn't changed in its natural state. It is what it is. It's of Adam, and it will reveal itself in the same fashion. At least I hadn't seen anything new. Uh, and that's saying a lot, being in police work for as long as I've been in it. <laughs> I used to say, uh, see something new every now and then. I hadn't seen anything new in a while. Maybe that's because I've been in police work a long time, but anyway... But it happens, and that is human, human nature. So we ask the question, if Abraham himself was justified by his personal faith, which we read about in Genesis 15 there, and again in Romans 4, uh, how could his descendants expect to be justified in any other way? Why was this not readily apparent to the Jewish elite of that day? They loved Abraham. Well, what about Abraham? How was Abraham justified? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. It was in, Righteousness was imputed into him because his faith was genuine. How do we know that? And that brings up another thing that we've been looking at because he did. He, he moved. He took a step. He acted on his faith. He didn't just sit back and say, okay. He literally, as it says, got up and went out. How? Not knowing where he was going. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time God said, you just do this. You just move in this direction. I want to see that first. You're convinced I'm talking to you. I'm showing you in my Word. I'm showing you through my Spirit what you need to do. Now, if you want more, you need to move. You need to to act on that faith. And you can't get away from that. No. Faith does. Faith will move in some fashion. It will. 
And God wants us to be responsible to that. Well, they thought of Abraham a whole lot different than we do. In fact, just like so many things, they, I'm talking about the Jews, they, they had a lot of things that emerged in their life that seemed to center around Abraham. For instance, they thought literally in their teaching that Abraham guarded the gates of Gehenna. He decided who came in and came out. This is just historical information about their religion that, that I find from some of MacArthur's work here. And they allowed Jewish ships to, to sail safely. They attributed that to Father Abraham. Okay. That Abraham was responsible for sending rain on Jewish crops. He was responsible for that. And that he enabled Moses to receive the law and enter heaven. That was Abraham. Or he caused David's prayers to be heard by God. And there's a whole list of other things. And it's just that, that same old tendency for man to uh, take something, put it out front, something that's more tangible. Okay, Anything, anything but accountability to Almighty God. Because what's Almighty God going to do? How's He going to clean us up? How's He going to do that? What's He going to do? What's that? He's going to convict us. That's what He's going to do. It's going to be the work of the Word and Spirit in our heart and life. And we know, as we say over and over again, as from John, that the work of the Spirit of God is to convince us or to convict us about what sin is, about what righteousness is, and that there is a judgment, that there is an accountability. That's the work. And there's no escaping that. But if there's some way we can get around that, the heart of man in its natural state had rather go there, had rather do that. In John eight, chapter or John chapter eight, verses thirty nine and forty, he said, Jesus said this, he says, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. He said it plainly. If you claim to be Abraham, if he's your example, then follow His best example. Put your faith into practice. Do the deeds of Abraham, He says. But as it is, in that context, He says, you're seeking to kill Me. Christ, of course, knew their heart. He knew what they were after. He says, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This, He says, Abraham did not do. Now you claim to follow Abraham, then do what Abraham did but once again Jesus exposed him he says that's not you're not even trying to follow him you're doing what you want to do you're you're sidestepping sin in your life that's what you're doing and we've looked many many times at especially when we were we 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 let's see I brought some information about that phrase about where he called him a brood of vipers because Christ uses that same terminology in Matthew 23 you know man he let them have it he laid it on them why because this is a serious thing and people who couch themselves in religiosity or religious leadership, if they say one thing and do another thing, they do so much damage. These people, whoever they are, God pray I'm never one of them in any degree, these people are powered by Satan himself. Why? Because they do the greatest amount of damage. They serve to blind people to their greatest need. And that greatest need will always come back in some form, some fashion, to simple repentance. 
Am I clean before God? Do I trust Him and His Word? Do I trust Him enough to accept its applicability in my life over any issue? So we can stop right now and ask the question. Last night when you lay your head on your your pillow before you dozed off, did you have the awareness that you were clean before God? I'm not suggesting that you wait (laughs) to that moment every night. Just throwing that out there as an example. Is there something else that needs to be done? You know, the more you study the Word of God and you, you just get into its its meaning and so forth, and you see just how holy and precious the Word of God is, and therefore how, how God is, you, you never really have a, seems to have a total sense of cleanliness. I think in my own life, it comes in bursts, you know, it comes in moments, because if nothing else, if there's nothing on my heart, then I, as, a, as I've alluded to before, I think of that verse in 1 Corinthians 4.4 4 with Paul. You know, again, he says, that's as far as I know. You know, there's nothing that I know about. He just acknowledges his flesh. So then we focus upon the grace of God. And the grace upon grace that God provides. And we learn to rest in Him. Sometimes having repented, having genuinely repented, leaves us with another task, and that's of, hey, then if you've genuinely repented before, then you need to leave that there. You need to leave that there, and you need to move on in the power of God. If there's something else that you need to do or say to someone else or something else to you know, slam the lid on that, that full repentance, fine. But that has to be left there. In other words, we're talking about our expression, our faith, our confidence that God has covered our sin and that He's satisfied. His Word is satisfied. Why? Because there's been a true repentance. There's been a true desire, it says a change of the mind, to move in a different direction. And with His help, we'll get there. So we trust God in that. We don't have anything else. There is nothing else. Anything else centers around your ability All we can do in this case is yield and trust God to help us put one spiritual foot in front of the other as we move on in our life. So, we have faith and we have obedience. John was making that clear to them uh, through recording Jesus' words here in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. And if you were to read a couple of verses ahead, Jesus told them, He says, you're having problems, He says, because He says, my Word has no place in you. So that's another challenge for us. We've got to believe what the Word of God says. And you say, well, this is the church. Of course we believe that. Well, no, we don't. In fact, what I just shared with you about leaving our repentance, our complete repentance, leaving it and moving on, trusting God for His grace, uh, a failure to do that in part, is, is tantamount to not believing God because He says that He will forgive. He will, you know, I like to think of Him, you know, He says in Psalm, He'll cast it as far as the east is from the west. That's what He'll do. And only He can do that. We must trust Him to do that. I've often prayed, God, remove, if you will, please, remove the thought of that sin from my mind. Have you ever done that? I don't even want to be plagued by that anymore. I don't. And we trust Him to do that. I think sometimes He leaves it in part as a help to us. <laughs> okay, A reminder to us that a word um, you know, spoken recklessly 
or uh, a deed not done or not done, either one could be a sin or any words, any of those things serve to continually remind us about how susceptible we are. So that's what we have. So let's look at the next verse in chapter 3, verse 10. Because John in his, John the Baptist in his fiery preaching, if you will, reminds them that there's an urgency. There's always an urgency, it seems, surrounding any element of repentance. He says the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here, Jesus is, of course, using language, um, I guess you could say agrarian or architectural language that the people would be familiar with. He's using that uh, as a metaphor, a symbol of a person going out and you know cleaning up the vineyard, cleaning up the the farm and getting the dead materials out of the way, and specifically those that have not been productive, those that show no evidence, there's no doing involved as we talked about, nothing produced. And he uses some strong terminology here, and it would have hit home. He said, well, these things are just gathered up and thrown into the fire. That's what happens to those and you could say, well, now, was he, is he talking about hell? Is that what he's talking Well, yeah, that's what he's talking about. It's useless. It has no benefit. It has no value because it did not produce anything. I worry about folks from time to time that I share with who claim to know God, claim to have trusted Him, they're relying upon Him for salvation, and yet they don't want to go to church. They don't want to associate, it seems, with the people of God regularly. They don't want to sit themselves under regular preaching and teaching of the Word. They don't want to be involved in any kind of corporate service or personal service per se. It's just something that they've set up that they're comfortable with between themselves and God. Now I know that things intervene in lives uh, as far as you know physical capabilities, things that we cannot do. You know, for whatever reason, illnesses, handicaps, uh, just our circumstances, maybe economic, whatever. I'm talking about, first off, desire. What is your desire? Is your desire to be with the people of God and to be under the sound of God? Do we really believe this morning that by being here, under the sound of the Word, wherever it is, if it's this class or some other class, and certainly in the uh, hour of worship to come, do we truly believe that the power of God, the Word of God, can change our life? And that if it involves repentance, then so be it. That's, that's what we'll do. That's where we'll go that day. And when we leave, we'll be greater empowered. We'll, we'll be filled. We'll be ready to do, to be involved, to serve. And by virtue of that, to experience a full life as a Christian. That is to be used of God and to have communion, to have communication with God and not be separated by our sin. Simple as that. Simple, profound perhaps, from the Word of God, and yet a challenge for us on a daily basis it would seem. Well, John seemed to believe that God's ultimate judgment was intimate. Uh, I think that's always uh, this kind of bold and evangelic preaching, evangelistic preaching, having this element of urgency is always important because we don't know. 
We don't know. We know that we're in the, the church age. We know that God will not, as it says, always strive with man. We know that there is an end uh, to the preaching and the teaching. We know that even on a personal basis, that we, we put off God so long, so often, and we, for whatever reason, we come up with other ways of satisfying our conscience or whatever, and we don't yield uh, to the clear teaching and preaching of the Word of God, that we grow dull. We learned about that when we did our, our lessons about the conscience and so forth. And we know that the conscience can be seared. We know that. We're responsible for acting upon the Word of God when we hear it. So John's laying it on them. And he says, if you're not useful, you get cut down, you get thrown into the fire. That word thrown or cast, it's that word balo. You've seen it <clears throat> before. And it means to throw, but it means to throw with violence is the connotation there. That there's, there's coming a, a time, is there's going to be, I don't know, it's a picture of force or authority that enough is enough and the thing is like grabbed and thrown it in the fire. Okay, that's what he's saying. That's the picture that came across. John was trying to get people's attention. I can imagine as he laid those words out to the Jewish leadership there, he knew what he was talking to. He knew. And he knew that they had walked over the Word of God and had made you know the Word say what they wanted it to say, come up with their own list of things to do and not to do. I think the list was why they had a list of like, I think it was 600 additional laws or rules that they would go by that included some really important things like you could gargle on the Lord's Day, but you could not swallow. Okay, things like that. Or you could eat a, a egg that was laid, uh, let me get this right, an egg from a chicken that was laid on the Sabbath if you killed the chicken, I believe is where that went. Things like that. Well, that's not the kind of doing that we're talk, talking about. Not at all. So John being the, as I say, the fiery preacher that he was, laid it, laid it out there. Know the Word of God, do the Word of God, and be willing to repent. Now the Gospel of John chapter fifteen six says, If anyone abides not, or if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, and dry, as the branch dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So you have Christ talking about that same type of, terminology there and that's what we have that's what we have so chapter 3 verse 11 he says as for me john the baptist again talking he says i baptize you with water for repentance but he who is coming after me is mightier than i and i am not fit to remove his sandals he, talking about Christ, of course, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we looked, I believe it was last week, briefly, uh, initially, at the different types of baptism and so forth. But here we can focus upon John's baptism. The word that's used there, once again, it's the same word that we've been looking at, it, and it, talk, uh, it talks about an immersion, which we know is an outward expression of an inward repentance, we understand here, and we need to know that clearly again, it, it reflects, as we know, the death down in the water, a burial and resurrection up out of the water of Christ. We understand that. 
that word repentance that he uses is the same word. You know, there are similar, similar words, but this one is metanoia, the word that we've looked at, which talks about a reversal, a 180. As I said, you're going this way, now you're going this way. It speaks of a change of mind that results in a, a change in action. We know that. He's just laying it out there again. He says, I'm not fit to remove his sandals. And John's clearly wanting to take the focus off of himself. Because remember, he's out there in the Jordan. It said that people from, from all the region, I mean way out in Judea, were coming to hear him. We don't know exactly where he was on the Jordan. We don't know exactly how many people came, but there were a lot of people coming. A lot of people coming. I think one of the best evidences of that is that the, the, the Jewish leadership came. And we, we discussed that at length about why they came. But even where a large crowd is gathering over something religious, they wanted to know about it and maybe even wanted to capitalize on it. So you have that going on. He's wanting to remove the focus from him. And apart from the fact that he's wearing the, the camel hair, which was, as we had discussed, indicative of an Old Testament prophet, and the, the girdle and so forth, he doesn't, he doesn't do anything to draw attention to himself other than the word that he's preaching. And we shared that this is John's greatness. This is what made him great. His focus upon this great, great message. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. This and this alone is what made him great. John will tell us in a little bit when Jesus wants to be baptized, he says, man, you you need to baptize me. I don't need to be baptizing you. You need to baptize me. We'll get to that. But John here again is saying, I can't even unlace the guy's shoes, okay? Don't focus upon me. My job is for you to focus upon the Messiah and He's coming because He's here. And friends, that's our message today. That's our mandate today. The world doesn't need to see us in any fashion. The only thing we need to be concerned about in that regard is that we don't become a stumbling block. That we're not something that hinders people in their faith. Other than that, we submit ourselves to the work of Christ and He does His work. He does His work. And if people want to say good things about us, then that's good. And if they want to say evil things about us, that's okay too, as long as we're doing for the Lord and doing it the Lord's way. This was certainly John's motivation. You could go to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, and this is what he says of Christ. There, John records, he said, He must increase but I must decrease. How important is it for us to know our purpose and our place, even in our ministries? We'll be judged by our faithfulness to the mission to which we are called, not on how we made it bigger and better. It's the depth of it that we're to be concerned with, which involves our own personal commitment. God will take care of the breadth of it. Plain and simple. My goal in here is not to grow a big Bible class. That's God's work. I'm not going to compete with God. I'm going to do what He wants. The goal in our church is never has been on numbers to grow a huge church. We understand the value of that. We like to see people coming and hearing, 
And we like to see people responding in droves is what we like to see. We like to see lives change genuinely. People coming and saying, this is the impact of the Word of God in my life because of the ministries here, whatever they are, however they're manifested. That's the real test. John's clear in that. We have his example in that, clearly. Okay, five minutes. Then, of course, we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Another baptism. It's that word pneuma that we see, which really just takes your mind to like a current of air or a breath or a breeze. So it, it identifies the Holy Spirit as a presence. Jesus in John 3 talks about it. You know, He says you can't see it. You can't know. You can see the results of it. You can see the results of the wind blow over a tree or something or blow something along the ground, but you can't see the wind. You can see the results of it. It's the same with the Holy Spirit, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. So once again, the question is, it's not just a physical baptism, a submission to uh, the water and the process of baptism, but specifically the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which comes to every believer upon their experience of a new birth. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what we have. (coughs) So this baptism is one of the ways in which Jesus Christ was mightier than John the Baptist. The coming of the promised Holy Spirit was for comfort. It was for help. It was for teaching. It was for convicting or convincing, as we say. It was for gifting. It was for guiding. All of these things are a result of the work of the Holy Spirit of God upon us. So you've got John's baptism. You've got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then he mentions something else here that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, but it reminds us once again about the nature of John's preaching. And if you will, the urgency... I think that's apparent in his preaching because he mentions here a baptism of fire. A baptism of fire. Baptism is often a metaphor used for an experience, a spiritual type of experience. We'll see that later on. But in 3.12 here, he says this. Uh, oh, did I pitch? No, uh, no. The latter part of 3.11, he says, he will, talking about Christ, says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So it's best seen here as speaking of God's coming judgment. And fire is most often associated with the judgment of God. And if I looked it up in its original, and he's talking about that which is burned up, and it's related to something, or, or punishment, or something that's consumed. That's what he's talking about. So John lays it out there. He wants people to understand that there's a specific purpose for seeking this genuine repentance. Uh, as he said earlier, because the un, the unproductive branches will be gathered up and will be thrown into the fire. So he comes at them with these analogies, if you will. And I think that they're, they do their work. In chapter 3, verse 12, as we finish up here, uh, he said, that's a little bit fast up there, that clock. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. You got the picture? A farmer, if you will, with that winnowing fork where he can pick up the 
the wheat with so many prongs in that winnowing fork, what they would do, I understand, they would throw it up in the air. And you, know, you had to kind of time it with what nature was providing you that day with a, with a good breeze. You throw it up in the air, and, and the things that were the chaff and all would be blown away. And they, that's called winnowing. Winnowing, they take it and throw it up. The chaff blows away, and they just keep doing this over and over until you have nothing left but the wheat. So that's the picture that he's sending out. <coughs> he's saying one day there's going to be a separation. There's going to be a process that will identify the chaff and the wheat. And he will thoroughly, he says, clear his threshing floor. He's not going to leave anything undone. Okay, everything that's in the corner is going to come out. It's going to get winnowed as well. He will gather his wheat into the barn. A place of safety. A place of destination. That's where it was supposed to go. It's analogous of being with God. It it arrived at its place. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So you see the analogies here that he lays out. And again, simply, John's message is the same as Jesus' message. It's the same as Paul's message. It's the same as Peter's message. We've looked at this. It was a message of repentance. That's what he puts out there. I want to end this morning, if you'll let me, because we're ending, we're, we're coming coming to a conclusion here regarding uh, John the Baptist in particular. Um, we'll, we're going to be moving uh, toward a pretty close look at the Trinity at some point. And I kind of wanted to end right before the Trinity. Of course, you know the Trinity's manifested there in the, in the latter verses, verses 16 and 17. But... Uh, Let's finish up. Let's go to the book of Mark just for a moment. Just thinking about John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 14, I believe it is. Yeah. Just to kind of remember John the Baptist and his ministry and where it took him. King Herod heard of it. Talking about John. For his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah, and others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sinned and had John arrested and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Isn't that interesting? A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his uh, lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. And the king said to the girl, after a few drinks, I would suppose, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. Foolish thing for a king to say, wouldn't you say? 
In verse 23, And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? She said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in, in a hurry to the king, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths, and because of his dinner guests, so much involved here, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard about this, they came and took away the body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray together.